Fun Ideas Productions presents the Fun Ideas Podcast. Hi, this is Mark Arnold. Welcome to Fun Ideas Podcast number 29. Alvin! The story of Ross Bagdasarian Sr., Liberty Records, Format Films, and The Alvin Show is out. Order your hardback, paperback, or ebook copies today on Amazon or at BearManorMedia.com. Another reminder that I am scheduled to be on Stu's show live on April 22nd discussing this book, and I also appeared recently on Phil Hall's online movie show to discuss it as well. Our guest today is a writer of many books, including books on Harvey Kurtzman, John Stanley, Otto Bender, Harry Langdon, and even himself. He's here today to discuss his latest book called Jim Warren, Empire of Monsters. Here he is, Bill Shelley. On the phone today, we have Bill Shelley, who has written a number of books, and his most recent book that's coming out soon is called Jim Warren, Empire of Monsters. How are you today? I'm good. Thanks for having me on your uh, podcast, Mark. Thank you. A little background first. Uh, Just tell us who you are and how you got into comic book fandom and writing and uh, things like that. Okay, well, let's see if I can sum that up real quick here. Um, but really, I'm uh, like so many people, I'm one of the baby boomers that grew up in the 60s who discovered comics uh, at the dawn of the Marvel era, you know, the early issues of Fantastic Four, Spider-Man, the Avengers, and all those, and have been a longtime fan. Um, at the same time, um, I was also very involved in comic fandom, which was, of course, still exists, but it was the beginnings of a group of people that were getting in touch through fanzines and uh, small Comic-Cons and so on in order to um, talk to people who cared about the hobby because at that time it was a small hobby and not that many people were interested in superheroes or comics in general. And so um, when I got involved in that as a teenager, I um, immediately decided I wanted to publish a fanzine. Mm-hmm. And at, so at the age of 13, uh, I was publishing a fanzine um, in 1965 called Superheroes Anonymous. Mm-hmm. Where that title came from, I have no idea. <laughs> uh, it makes no sense, really. Uh, but, um, uh, and of course, at 13, what do you have to say? Right. It's funny, you know, when you think about it. But of course, many kids have their own little neighborhood newspapers and so on. And and so it's a common thing for kids to kind of try to publish their own little thing. And I did. And that's how I uh, kind of got deeper into fandom and comics throughout the 60s and published a fanzine called Sense of Wonder, which became uh, kind of a, a slick, professionally printed fan magazine in its later issues. Uh, and that ended when I graduated from college in 1973. Mm-hmm. And since then, I've you know been um, involved in the hobby. Uh, started not really writing about it much though until I was about 40. Around 1990, I started really getting interested in writing something about comics or writing about fandom. And that was what got me started. And now I've gotten something like I'm approaching 30 books. Wow. Um, <laughs> I didn't realize that, but yeah, go ahead. <laughs> well, you know, since since 1995, uh, when I published uh, 
comic fandom, which was the first, you know, and as far as I know, still the only attempt to tell the history of comic fandom from its beginnings. Um, that was in 1995, uh, and then up to today, you know, I've just been completely consumed with this idea of becoming, you know, a writer and writing about the hobby and writing biographies. Mm. So that's kind of uh, the summary bringing you up to what I do now. Okay. Uh, a few questions. Um, of course, it's a question and answer show. Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> you mentioned two fanzines. Did you have those going concurrently, the Superheroes Anonymous and Sense of Wonder at the same time? Um, no. What oh, okay. it was was that um, I would do a fanzine, and then as I was growing up and getting a little older, I would start to think, oh, that's kind of crummy, so I would change the title, but keep the numbering. Oh, okay. That way, it looked like I was publishing, you know, numerous issues, and create the, you know, so I wasn't always going back to number one. Okay. <laughs> and so I did Superheroes Anonymous, and then I changed the title to Incognito with number three, and so I was always doing that. I was publishing one thing, and if it wasn't that, um, then when Sense of Wonder came along, I wasn't doing any of those others at that time. Oh, okay, so you you uh, pulled you pulled an EC Comics where you started off with Fat and Slat and <laughs> International right. Comics, and then it evolved into something else or something. Right, yeah. okay, it ends up in Default of Horror or something, <laughs> um, <laughs> which would have, uh, you know, if you think about it, uh, Bill Gaines' father must have been turning over in his grave over that because he was all into the tiny tots and the animal comics and everything and his son takes over and before you know it you have <laughs> horror comics right <laughs> uh, but anyway um yeah I, I would i would change it as i went along mm -hmm. and i also contributed to a lot of other amateur you know fanzines mm -hmm. so i was fairly well known back then at that time doing that so you actually, I know you worked on the books, the best of Alter Ego 1 and 2, but did you actually contribute back then? I didn't, um, oh, okay. and I was so envious of my best friend, Marshall Lance, <laughs> who had a cartoon in Alter Ego number 8, hmm. or maybe it was number 9, I think it was 8, yeah. and it, it, no, it was 9 because it was a parody of the Black Hawk cover on number 8, but the point is, my best friend who... <laughs> I always thought it was a crummy artist. I can say that now because he passed away, so I'm not hurting it, hurting his feelings. He's turning in his grave. No. <laughs> you know, I, 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 the thing is, it's so funny because I was really a crummy artist too. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I was so I was very envious. What he had done is he had uh, written a letter of comment on Alter Ego number eight and sent it to Roy Thomas. And in the letter, he had done a cartoon uh, of Blackhawk jumping out of his plane and then going splat. And Roy thought that was cute, and he ran it in Alter Ego 9. Mm -hmm. And it worked really great. And uh, But me, no. I never got to the Alter Ego level. Mm -hmm. I was um, usually uh, in the more um, uh, middle ranks, you'd mm -hmm. say. And uh, how was it fandom back then? I see. I started collecting comics in the '70s, so you already had the Price Guide, Overstreet, and you know things were getting a little more professional. It was still kind of like a closet thing, you know, but not the way it was before. I mean, how did you get your information back then? There's no comics journal or anything, so. Well, exactly, and that was the, one of the main things that brought comic fans together was because they had so many questions. Like, um, you know, imagine people trying to c collect 
you'd have issues like when Little Lulu came out, the first issue was number 74. Right. <laughs> and then there'd be issue like 105, 110, 111, and then when they'd break out into their own comic book, they'd be number one again. Right. And it's just, this is the kind of stuff that just drove fans crazy. So when they came together, they started creating checklists mm. and they started creating uh, and sharing them through the fanzines and uh, just by correspondence and so on right. and gradually the history coming together and writing the history of comics and discovering the history of comics became one of the major reasons why people came together okay. and uh, so as far as finding information goes um you know, uh, most of what I did in the fanzines was do things like amateur comic strips and um, reviews of the latest Marvel comics, <laughs> things like that. Uh, so there was no research involved. Uh, people who were really doing the research, and Alter Ego was one of them, um, and and then of course there was the series All in Color for a Dime right. that was uh, published in Zero, the fanzine Zero, by Richard and Pat Lupoff. Um, we're doing articles on Golden Age comics, and so you'd read those, or you'd read, uh, you'd look at uh, cover reproductions that were in um, a few fanzines here and there, and so you could see what was, appeared on the covers. But boy, you know, it really was a, um, uh, a different time because uh, you just didn't know. For example, I wanted to buy a Golden Age comic book, and I couldn't afford much, so I'd order like a Daredevil comic book from the early 50s. This is the earlier version of Daredevil than we have today. Right. And Daredevil didn't appear in his own title after the 40s. His title was taken over by a group of kids, uh, funny comics called The Little Wise Guys. Hmm. Well, I had no way of knowing that. <laughs> I just thought I was getting it for $3 or $2. I was getting a, an old Daredevil comic book. Uh, so I got it and I went, oh, this isn't what I hoped for. <laughs> And uh, so, you know, you just didn't have sources of information. Mm, yeah. So everybody is, yeah, you know, I even mentioned the ECs. Yeah, this is, I know I've seen it before in EC fandom. You know, it's like, why does Weird Science start with number 12? Where are the other 11 <laughs> issues? Things like that or whatever. Yeah. Well, but the th one thing about the EC fandom, though, Mark, is that they did have a checklist. Yeah. That was the one area that did. Right. In 1957... In 1958, Fred von Bernowitz published the complete EC checklist, which he went to the offices of EC and got their help with. So, all those, pretty much all the EC questions were in that checklist, but other fans didn't even know that that checklist existed right. because <laughs> that had been year, that had been years before. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, it was it was tough to figure out these questions. Yeah. And then four color. When did they crack the code on four color? You know, and finding out, oh, there's like thirteen hundred plus issues, and you know, it was just like a tryout well, issue was, for a series. <laughs> yeah, that was a, that was a major challenge, and and the people that took it on were um, Don and Maggie Thompson, huh, okay. and they, of course, Maggie Thompson, who's still with us, um, were the editors of a fanzine called Comic Art which is a very uh, important early fan scene. And um, they were particularly fans of a lot of the material that was in the Del Four Color series. And the, some of the Disney titles, the, um, the little Lulu comics and others. And so they just 
had a whole project where they enlisted all of fandom to try to fill in this checklist, mm. and they gradually did and published it. But it took until 1968. They wow. started. <laughs> they started. Yeah, they started in the mid 60s. It took about three years, mm -hmm. and they finally did publish the uh, complete uh, four color index. And so you knew what was in each issue at least. It didn't have any credits or anything, right. but it had the the subject. Yeah. Yeah, because, <laughs> you know, like I said, in the 70s, it was all established. They said there's a few missing issue numbers and stuff like that, but essentially, you know, it was established by that point. So I just figured it always was. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. And in, fact, in fact, Bob Overstreet in his prize guide, uh, what he did was he gathered up the checklist from Don and Maggie. Uh -huh. He gathered up the EC checklist. He gathered up checklists that were done by Jerry Bales of, like, All-Star Comics and early DC Comics. Yeah. And that's how he started building his uh, his uh, price guide. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and that's, that was 1970. And he must have, uh, I don't know who it was, he might know is, you know, Classics Illustrated kind of made heads and tails out of that with all the reprints and everything. Oh, that was a nightmare. <laughs> but, then, but then Classics Illustrated wasn't generally that popular in fandom because, yeah. uh, you know, um, although there were some um, good artists who did some of them, even Jack Kirby right. uh, did a cup one or two. I think it maybe, maybe it was just one, but others, Reed Crandall and yeah. others. Yeah. But um, they weren't that heavily collected, and the ones that they that were were published in the late fifties and the early sixties. So those weren't the ones that were reprinted with different covers. Mm -hmm. You know, they went they changed their cover format from a drawing to a painting around um, nineteen fifty, mm -hmm. and and so the you know <laughs> anyway. So so uh, yeah, that was that was, fandom was a period of, of discovery, mm -hmm. and it was a very exciting time because um, you were meeting people who were um, often, I would say, generally speaking, a lot of the fans were you know more of above average intelligence. Mm -hmm. Many of them were very creative and did their own comics and drawings, um, and uh, you were collecting the fanzines as well as the comic books that were coming out from DC, Marvel, and so on. Uh, and uh, you know, it was a, a good time to be a comic fan. Mm -hmm. Now, the the same time you started collecting, and this will tie into your current book, yeah, uh, Warren Publications uh, kind of picked up where EC left off, and also, you know, in tying in with the fandom, you know, Forrest J. Ackerman, the editor of Famous Monsters, was heavily into fandom long before any of us. Um, yeah, that's right. So, um, I guess, you know, to tie into the book and everything like that, uh, obviously you have an interest in it, uh, but... Uh, how did you discover information for your book? Did you interview Jim Warren or even Forrest Ackerman in the past or anything like that? And uh, just tell me the origins of the the Jim Warren book you have. Okay. Well, of course, um, first, I, obviously, the, the main thing is that I, I won't spend two or three years working on a book project unless I'm in really interested. Yeah. And in my case, I grew up, um, not only collecting comics, but I also grew up uh, watching horror movies on TV, like on Saturday Night Chiller Theater, mm -hmm. and, and reading uh, creepy and eerie The Warren magazines and Famous Monsters of Filmland. Mm -hmm. So I, that was part of my background, and, um, and I was interested in finding out more about it. Now, when I wrote my uh, Harvey Kurtzman biography, uh, you know, Harvey Kurtzman is the man who created Mad. Mm -hmm. uh, he, Harvey Kurtzman worked for James Warren and did a magazine called Help. Right. And that 
talking on the phone because of his hearing loss. Mm. He uh, uh, has had his hearing damaged when he was in the military in the early 50s. And uh, and so uh, it's deteriorated over the years. And so we did have a good conversation over the phone, but it wasn't easy for him, I don't think. Right. Um, so anyway, when I decided, was thinking about what I wanted to write you know, down the line, I thought, well, gee, a book on, on James Warren would be great, and I've already talked to him. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, so I, I went to my publisher, um, uh, Graphics, who published uh, five of my earlier biographies, mm-hmm. and asked if they were interested, in, and uh, they were. So um, I contacted Warren and said I wanted to do this. Would he? Could I interview him? And he uh, was very nice, but he wrote back and just said, "No, um, I'm working on my own uh, memoirs." Mm. And of course, I found out he'd been working on them for about 20 years. <laughs> but he's he had a plan to do them more to actually get them done, you know, in the short term. And so he uh, he didn't feel he wanted to help me with my book because he was working on his. Mm. And so I um, I wrote back and just said, well, I hope you'll change your mind, but uh, you know I, I'm going to go ahead because as it turns out, my publisher Gary Groth had interviewed him at substantial length twice mm. in interviews that were never published. Mm. And so I, Gary said, well, I, you can use these interviews. One was in 1975, it was quite long. Mm-hmm. And then another was in 1998, which was very long mm. and uh, had a lot of stuff in it that I never talked about anywhere else. So between that and my own conversations with him and other interviews that were published at the time mm-hmm. and copies and, and also getting access to uh, copies of correspondence, letters he wrote back then, like a lot of the people he wrote to, like Tom Sutton, mm-hmm. kept, kept copies. Mm-hmm. And eventually um, they ended up um, in the files at Fanographics mm-hmm. and, or copies of them. So I have uh, many, many, I had uh, many, many words by Jim Warren that have never been known before. Ah, okay. <laughs> uh, many aspects of his life that he's never talked about before. And, of course, some things, interviews that were published that um, I could also access. And so, therefore, um, I decided it, may, it, would, it would be possible to do a book without interviewing him. Okay. Uh, so that's the that was the situation. I was not going to be able to interview him, but I decided to do the book anyway, and I ended up being very fortunate and getting all kinds of great you know, information and talking to people like his best one of his best friends from college who stayed friends with the, all all these years, mm-hmm. and um, another good friend of his uh, who we met in the early '60s who's been his friend all these years, and so. Um, I I feel like I was able to tell uh, a, a very complete story from the information I had. Mm. Um, now, obviously, and we mentioned this before we started the recording, uh, 
there is a previous book by John Cook called The War and Companion, and there is interviews and information in there. But does so? How does your book differ? I mean, as far as information, you have tons more than that ever would. Give. So there would be a reason to buy your book, of course, uh, beyond that well, other one. <laughs> yes, um, yes, exactly. Um, the War and Companion. The way it differs is uh, the War and Companion is um, uh, in interview form, and it is all approved and edited by Jim Warren. Mm. So naturally, it's um, there's a bit of a, you know, I would say to some degree, it's his own uh, image that he wants to project mm. in, in, that, in that interview. And, uh, but, but I would say it's still a very accurate, uh, truthful, from what I could tell, a very truthful interview. But it only, it, for one thing, it completely stops uh, at the time that Warren publishing ended mm -hmm. and my book goes beyond that although I'm not going to talk about what I discovered about his life later that you have to be a surprise for people to buy the book okay. <laughs> uh, but also um, I talked to a lot of people that like I said when you're talking about his good friends that were there you have other people that were on site that have maybe a different view of things mm -hmm. uh, you have um, these unpublished interviews where he talks about things that he never talked about any other time mm -hmm. so there's lots in this book that no one has ever known before and, and um, you know it's, it's really a much more complete uh, story and of course it's a Biography, so it's written more or less like a story. It's written in narrative form. So you follow him through, you know, his schooling and his high school and different people that knew him in high school, and um, you know things that happened when he was um, in his original publishing in the fifties, mm -hmm. um, and all kinds of, like I said, information that has never been known before. So I would be perfectly comfortable with telling people that, you know, uh, this book, you would have to have it in addition to the Warren Companion. I see. Um, can you reveal one of the early things that you discovered? I mean, I know you want everybody to read the book, but just, to, you know, just a short, you know, like something that might have even contradicted something in the Companion because of uh, finding out more information about it. Well, one thing I can say, is, in just in general, is that um, his story about how he got started uh, publishing um, and and uh, went into a bank and basically sat down and wouldn't leave till they gave him a loan <laughs> is not true. Well, and 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 so uh, at least not according to his best friend, who turns out to have helped been his silent partner. Uh -huh. <laughs> so I would say that's one thing, for example. Yeah. I love discovering stuff like that, you know, like when... <laughs> yeah, and also things, you know, things just like uh, talking to people that knew him, uh, a friend um, who knew him in high school, or people that um, uh, you're, you're, you're um, showing things that it, um, it's not widely known that Warren was married. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, I mean, not all the time. He was briefly married, and I tell that story, which is actually kind of a funny story. And uh, so, yeah, there's definitely things in there for sure. Um, but uh, the start of the origin of Warren Publishing, in particular, uh, is one thing that was quite eye-opening. Hmm. Yeah, that was one thing I I kind of know uh, want to know about because yeah, again, in the Warren Companion, it's kind of quick if I remember correctly. It's almost like. 
yeah, I wanted to publish a Playboy knockoff called After Hours, and I got the money, and that was it. You know, that seems like how I kind of remember it. I've, I haven't read the Companion in years, but I go, wasn't it more involved than that? I don't know. Maybe he just yeah, thought it was yeah, too boring. It, it, it goes into more depth. It, it goes into who was the distributor, how he financed um, After Hours, who his partners were, and how he was able to get a magazine going when he didn't have a dime in his pocket. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and, and the whole story about him later being arrested and, and, and what was really behind that. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, it was maybe painted in broad strokes, yeah. but there are also, th- and, and the book, so my book goes into much more depth about that and really explains what happened. And then there are other things that, you know, I have in the book that just, you know, have never been talked about anywhere before. Yeah. Now, did he always have the intentions of publishing magazines, or was he ever considering comic books? I know he did a comic book for the World's Fair later with the Flintstones, but that's not what I mean. I just mean doing comic book line or any sort of other, you know, thing like venturing into TV or movies or anything else. Or was it always, I want to publish magazines? Well, I think the uh, the thing about it is, is that we have to remember the most is that Warren really... Uh, came from nothing. His parents were just average working class people, and so he didn't have any financing or connections. And so getting into a magazine was the, about the only way he could get in. Mm-hmm. And and, and um, he was able to you know go to a distributor and make that happen with the help of his silent partner. Mm-hmm. But once he got into magazines, that's pretty much what he wanted to do. Now, he did try to do a movie uh, in the early 60s that was really just uh, snipping together footage roll silent movies <laughs> and doing some kind of comedy um, um, soundtrack, and it never came out. Oh. Uh, so he had some interest in doing that. Uh, and then later, of course, he wanted to do a Vampirella movie. Yeah. And much of his time in the 70s was spent trying to make that happen. Right. And I know that story, at least through uh, books about Hammer, you know, that the financing never quite came through, if I remember correctly. Well, uh, yeah. And, and uh, you know, there are other issues, the casting, the um, script, Warren's own personal demands, his, and his... Um, in the project because you know he wasn't about to let that just say okay well sign on the line and then give me my money and that's it he was going to be involved in the production of it he was going to be involved in and so you know Warren was a kind of a uh, I guess you call him you know kind of a control freak mm-hmm. and so what you know it's it's a business that involves collaboration and there isn't it isn't possible for one person to call every shot in the movie business. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's a group effort. And, and, and even a director is heavily relying on the producers and the casting people and all that kind of thing. But Warren really, you know, would have wanted to try to control it all. Yeah. And I think that was a big part of it, and I talk about that to, to some degree in the book as well. But yeah, he wanted it. He was interested in that. And he, and, as, but, and he always talked about, at various times, he would talk about getting into comics mm-hmm. and uh, his nemesis was Stan Lee <laughs> and he just hated Stan mm-hmm. and um, uh, because Stan was successful and and Stan um, uh, represented what Jim would have liked to have had 
but then I don't think he recognized that Stan wasn't the master of his own fate either. Mm-hmm. He had to, you know, report to Martin Goodman. Right. Goodman. Right. And so um, I don't think Warren would have really been able to function in that kind of a situation anyway, mm-hmm. because he was the he had to be the the captain of the ship. Mm-hmm. And so the one thing that defined any choices he made was, I think, that he had to be in control. So, uh, you know, he wasn't going to partner with someone that had equal control or anything like that, I don't think. Um, With the Hammer movie, obviously, he knew he had to to some degree. Yeah. (laughs) But, but yeah, I think the magazine business he found very challenging, and it's a tough, tough business. Right. (laughs) And and so I think for him, just staying afloat for 25 years... Mm-hmm. In publishing was a major uh, accomplishment, and it is a major accomplishment. Mm-hmm. And I think he always was challenged by that. I, maybe he got bored toward the end. Mm-hmm. I would say, you know, by the late seventies, though, he had people working for him, like uh, Louise Simonson, yeah. who came in in nineteen seventy-five uh, or began editing his magazine in seventy-five, and they were the best they'd ever been. So he had, he had people who coming in and, and artists like uh, uh, Bernie Wrightson and, and so on uh, that made the magazines I you know I really think the I call the, the magazines for Warren in the 1970s the silver age of Jim Warren mm-hmm. yeah, maybe the golden age was those early issues of Creepy and Eerie with the fabulous EC artists like mm-hmm. Frank Frazetta or uh, Reed Crandall or, or others um, from EC um but the 70s had an amazing amount of great material, scripts by Bruce Jones and a lot of art by people like Russ Heath mm-hmm. and um, others. It, 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 it's, it's an area that people should explore if they have not. That's another thing I try to do in this book is explain why the 70s was such a, a good period for the content of Warren's magazines, not the monster magazines so much, mm-hmm. but the, the comics magazines. Right. You know, Forey never got, or um, Jim never got along all that well with Forrest J. Ackerman. <laughs> and, and you said, you know, Warren always wanted to run the show, and, you know, I, I guess the closest he'd have as a partner probably was Forey, right? Well, yeah, I mean, I think the thing about it is is that Jim could never have gotten started without Ackerman. Yeah. yeah. Because Ackerman had the collection of, what, 50,000, supposedly 50,000 stills, and I don't, who knows the truth of the numbers, but the fact is he had the material. Right. And Warren had the ability to get it published. Right. And so the two of them together were necessary to do Famous Monsters. But since Warren was handling the financial side, he ultimately had the you know the upper hand, mm-hmm. and um, so uh, he, what happened is that Foy would send in material, and Warren would reject things. <laughs> Warren would would tell him we or, or he would say let's do something like this on this issue, or he would say I don't want to put that on the cover right now, maybe later. Mm. So he would um, ultimately he kind of. I would say he co-edited with Forrest Ackerman. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think you can say that Forrest Ackerman was the full editor of Famous Monsters because he just sent in stuff. He didn't really have anything to do with the layout. He didn't have anything to do with what was... He he didn't always determine what was going to be in an issue Mm -hmm. and so on. 
Um, so many questions now that you're talking about this. So and, 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 I, I, and I go into that in the book yeah. a, a great deal because yeah. I think it's very interesting okay. that um, people don't realize how much that James Warren had to do with uh, the success of Famous Monsters. Right. Um, so I'll just ask, based on all this, I'll just ask questions that you know I kind of know and just kind of, if in your studies or research, uh, if this was true or not, or you found more information. So the old chestnut is about famous monsters. Is there's a couple pages uh, uh, produced in an after hours issue that were featured monsters, and the whole thing kind of was based on a a French magazine called Cinema 57 or something like that and uh, then they decided to take a chance on a one shot on famous monsters is that kind of basically the story that's true that is correct okay. um, uh, yeah that much that's absolutely true okay. the um, the uh, what had happened was that uh, Screen Gems had released it was going to be releasing these uh, their horror films from the 30s like Frankenstein the mummy the wolf uh, the Frankenstein and so on to net to television and it was a huge deal in the 50s and Warren read regularly read variety and and magazines like that because he wanted just because he was interested in show business and he read about this and he realized that there was going to be uh, that there could be a market for a magazine that would tie in with this mm. and at this, and, and at that time, he, Forey Ackerman happened to be in New York, um, and they got together um, commiserating over the, the end of After Hours, because <laughs> Forey, Forey Ackerman wrote for After Hours, not a lot, but some. Yeah. And, um, and at that time, Forey showed him a copy of Cinema 57. intention for kids or at least younger people because I mean it is kind of a switch if After Hours was more for an adult audience. Yeah you're right it's funny because After Hours was definitely for an adult audience it was a, a you know it was a very mild uh, titillating magazine but not a lot of nudity but it did have some um, nudity and but then to turn around from being accused of being a pornographer to doing a magazine for little kids yeah. is quite a turnaround. Now, was that Warren's uh, idea, or was that Forey's, or did they both... That, that was Warren's idea. Warren was the one that knew that to make the magazine work, it would need to be aimed at kids. Hmm, okay. <laughs> that he, that he, and if you look at the history of Famous Monsters, and a lot of people compare it to Castle of Frankenstein, and they all say, oh, we, Castle of Frankenstein was vastly superior, and it was so much more intelligent, so much better. Well, 
that's true. <laughs> but it sold much, much less. And the fact of the matter is that uh, Castle of Frankenstein came out a couple times a year, mm -hmm. and uh, it just never, it sold, you know, a fraction mm -hmm. of what famous monsters did. So from a commercial standpoint, Warren was much more um, in tune with uh, the demand that was out there in the marketplace. Hmm. So did he really know that, or is it just kind of dumb luck that they happened? <laughs> I think he, he was, you know, it, it was a, a hunch. It was okay. a... Well, he knew that the kids were watching Chiller Theater. True, true. <laughs> uh, you know, they they would talk about the demographic. I suppose there was information available in marketing magazines on the demographic. And um, I think also, um, you know, he just knew instinctively that adults th would think a lot of that stuff was silly, but kids love monsters. Mm -hmm. And he had a whole theory, which I talk about, about why kids love monsters, mm -hmm. because Frankenstein was born into a world he never made. He never, Frankenstein never asked to be born, and suddenly people were telling him what to do. And just like kids never asked to be born, and suddenly they have parents telling them to turn off the light, go to bed, da-da-da. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> and so he thought that, there, that kids identified right. with monsters to some, in some way. So, uh, in his mind, uh, he put that together. I think he put it together in a way that no one else might have, mm -hmm. because uh, now there were people that jumped on the bandwagon fairly quickly, right. but um, not not uh, you know he was first with what he did. There were other magazines that had some content, mm -hmm. but essentially he was the first that came up with the idea for a monster a monster magazine, mm -hmm. and he was he was uh, he was right about. attempt anything else between uh, Famous Monsters and Creepy because I know it was like six or seven years before Creepy came along uh, or you know even stillborn things like ideas they had I guess they did have Spaceman and a couple other uh, oh no there yeah there yeah. definitely were other things yeah, yeah. for one thing that Help magazine that I told sure. you about the satire magazine mm -hmm. that ran from 1960 to 1965 okay I wasn't thinking about and that and there's yeah. 20 <laughs> I think there's 26 issues or something right. like that right uh, it wasn't ultimately a big hit but it went it was there and then they did Spaceman like you said and that was an attempt to do a, 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 a magazine about movie uh, fantasy and science fiction it wasn't about the space race. Yeah. It was about um, outer space in movies, right? And so there, and also, uh, and and when that didn't succeed, they did something called Screen Thrills Illustrated, <laughs> which was about more again was about taking old stills and movies, uh, big, um, doing things on movies uh, like the movie serials, the old serials, uh, Tarzan movies, westerns. And just a general catch-all, um, uh, you know, sort of apart from the monster m movies, but the other kind of old movies that people were nostalgic about, mm -hmm. and they tried to make a go of that. And there's, um, 
something like 10 to 12 issues of Screen Thrills Illustrated. Um, I'm, you know, and, and, and it, it didn't do that well. Yeah, that was my next so, question. I mean, did all these do well or anything like that? I mean, there's a Westerns one, too, I remember, but it's like... Uh, they only seemed to last a handful of issues, whereas Famous Monsters kept going. Was there a secret to why Famous Monsters worked, or is it just the monsters, or is it writing, or both? Or well, you know, that's a, something for that's open for discussion. I have a theory about that, okay. um, and it's true that none of his other magazines were successful enough to continue, mm -hmm. uh, and except for um, the, the monster magazines and. I believe it's because the comics code had taken the po any possibility of horror out of the comic book field. Mm. And movies were pretty tame in those er years. And kids, there was no way that kids could get horror except through famous monsters mm. and shock theater. So it was filling a market niche that wasn't being served by the publishing industry for kids. Mm. And uh, because, like I said, there couldn't be a horror comic with the comics code. And in fact, the, the, um, the, the really, the Warren Publishing with Creepy and Eerie and Vampirella were the thing that kind of bridged the gap in comics history from the coming of the comics code until the start of the direct market. Mm -hmm. Because they lasted from, you know, the 50s to the 80s. Mm -hmm. And so if you wanted something that was semi-intelligent, uh, I mean, you know, they were adapting Edgar Allan Poe. Mm -hmm. They were adapting, you know, Ambrose Bierce. They were adapting other writers, Bram Stoker. And, uh, you know, it wasn't exactly what you'd call high literary material, <laughs> unless you want to include Poe. But I mentioned Poe because he was, a, you know, he is taken seriously in the literary world. But these were comics that were read by older readers than were reading, you know, an older demographic. And they were more uh, adult-oriented. There could be nudity. There minimal, but mm -hmm. still some. Yeah. Um, the language was never too strong, but you could have a dam or a hell, right. and I don't think you could do that in, in uh, uh, comic books at the time. No. <laughs> and they could deal with adult subjects. Um, so until the underground comics came along, especially, there was nothing that anybody who wasn't a kid or nostalgic um, or a fan, real fan of hardcore fan of comic books, there was there there wasn't something in the comic book form for them, mm -hmm. and so he kind of um, bridged that gap until the direct market finally made it possible for adult readers to get to comics and for comic creators to create stuff for adult readers. Mm -hmm. Now, when Creepy came along, which was 1964, um, yeah, I think didn't he do some tryouts of comic book stories or horror stories in Famous Monsters just to see if it would work? Is that what it was? Well, or, or was that they, were they were advocated by a guy named Russ Jones, yeah. and he was working with Wally Wood, and he sold Warren on the idea of running a, a short version of the movie The Mummy and uh, some other things, and these were not anticipated to be the start of a magazine or anything. Mm. They were just a pro individual projects that Bruce jo Jones promoted to Warren, 
And I think after that happened, um, he, you know, he, he, Bruce Jones began to think in terms of doing a revival of EC. Mm-hmm. But Creepy and Eerie were actually uh, born out of the, uh, another person's imagination, Larry Ivy. Mm-hmm. Larry Ivy is the one who thought of the, uh, the doing a magazine, um, a black and white magazine with horror stories using the old EC artists. Mm-hmm. And he wrote a bunch of scripts and he... Um, had some illustrations put together in a whole presentation and then he basically left it with Bruce and Bruce took it into Warren and Bruce became the editor mm-hmm. and Larry was kind of left out in the cold mm-hmm. and uh, so Larry spent the rest of his life trying to convince people that he had been the one who created uh, Creepy mm-hmm. and, and in fact he had mm-hmm. and so the book explains that and more or less proves that with examples of things uh, such as a canceled check from Warren um, for editing work to Larry Ivey oh, uh, and um, some other things. Hmm. So, yeah. the, But the early comics were not necessarily thought of, in fact Warren didn't really think they fit into you know, hmm. um, famous monsters, hmm. but he, he did gradually realize that all these artists wanted to come together and do a magazine and when they agreed to work uh, uh, to do the ma- when all the artists came together and Jones could say well I have this person I have that person I have um, you know the, all these people that want to do it then Warren could see okay I can see how that might work and mm-hmm. that's when it happened now was there any hesitancy or did they even were they even aware of it I mean uh, EC at the tail end tried to do black and white magazines and had uh, Terror Illustrated and it only lasted what two or three issues or something like that and right. I, from what I know is they all flopped except for of course Mad and uh was there any hesitancy to do a, a, a like an EC revival and doing all comics like that because of those, or that never crossed their minds? Well, for one thing, Warren never wanted to do an EC revival. That was not on his radar. Oh, okay. He didn't okay. he didn't even like EC comics that much. <laughs> that was Bruce Jones promoting <clears throat> promoting that idea, but. You have to remember that those black and white EC magazines that flopped were not comics per se, they were picto fiction, which is really something with more text and less art. Mm. And uh, they weren't true comics. And secondly, at that time, EC had become a dirty word (laughs) because of the Senate hearings and things like that. So newsstands were not wanting to carry any EC comics. Mm -hmm. And so after, so when they came along with the Picto Fictions, they got very, very little even distribution. Mm -hmm. But Warren, no, Warren never mentioned the Picto Fiction comics. And it's an interesting question to pose to him, Mm -hmm. but uh, he never mentioned it as a concern at all. He was in another, this was, you know, light years later, like six years later, seven years later. (laughs) And uh, I think he felt that um, he was in a whole other era of publishing, really. Now, um, he did get in trouble a little bit with After Hours, but did he get any trouble with Famous Monsters or Creepy or Eerie or any, Vampirella or any publication later on, or is things kind of looser at that point, so he was off the radar so much? No, they never had any problem. Okay. They, uh, they, Warren was terrified that there would be, <laughs> yeah. that somehow they would try 
say that these things have to be reviewed by the comics code or somehow and of course that really wasn't going to happen because it was a magazine and so it was a different class of publication mm. and once you say you're going to have to review one kind of magazine well what about another kind of magazine right. so he was able he, but he was still afraid of it and worried about it because mm. he was worried that parents would object right. and that's why Creepy and Eerie um, for one thing the interiors of all these magazines were black and white mm-hmm. including Famous Monsters so there was never any red blood yeah. shown and secondly there was um, almost no blood shown anyway especially in those early years yes there'd be vampires where their little blood would trickle down their chin mm-hmm. but um, it was in black it was not in red Mm-hmm. And um, uh, according to Archie Goodwin, um, he stated on the record that they never had a problem. Hmm. Okay. Now, um, later on, there's a lot of, as with Famous Monsters, but there's a lot of competition. You know, there's Web of Horror that was published by the de- people who did Cracked, and uh, there was uh, Nightmare, all the Skywald things, all the, what's the other... Uh, uh, publisher that did a bunch too, uh, Eerie and all those different ones. Did those right. uh, crack into well, Warren's fortunes, or were they just kind of just also rands that were around at the time? Well, remember also there were, of course, I don't know if you, I may have missed you mentioning that Marvel. Oh yeah, Marvel did Marvel. later on too. Uh, yeah, Marvel I, it, also yeah. Marvel also did a lot of black and white magazines mm-hmm. with horror and type titles. Yeah, but um, well, I think it can be said first foremost that Jim Warren never wanted to be a trendsetter mm-hmm. he hated magazines that imitated him <laughs> with a passion mm-hmm. and he um, he never uh, he always felt that they were taking money out of his pocket but mm-hmm. the truth is his magazines never suffered the sales of his magazines mm-hmm. were consistent uh, and, and that was they were coming out uh, his magazines were coming back from kind of a downturn mm-hmm. in the early 70s uh, which is why Web of Horror got some traction because he for a while there he had trouble paying artists and writers mm-hmm. um, and he was doing a lot of reprints and um, so that that gave um, Web of Horror a chance to get going because he, he wasn't really um, paying the kind of uh, rates that the, the, the uh, web of horror was going to pay, and uh, but his magazine was coming back sales wise. Mm-hmm. So by the time web of, web of horror came out, you know I didn't hurt him, and even for all of his worrying and and, and bad mouthing of Marvel and you know how much he hated the black and white magazines that came out from Marvel, his sales were. Uh, were very solid all the way through the 70s. Mm. And so there's never any... Now, Famous Monsters never um, got back to the level that it was at its peak during the monster craze of around 64, 65. Mm -hmm. But it was still a solid seller always. And um, so they didn't end up hurting him. Well, even in the Star Wars... Did the Star Wars years kind of help Famous Monsters? Late, Late 70s? Oh, well, the, absolutely. The, yeah. What happened was the, the, the Famous Monster was Famous Monsters was drifting a little bit sales-wise, but then when Star Wars came along, you know, it's like uh, showing. You know, suddenly, <laughs> <laughs> suddenly uh, um, Star uh, Famous Monsters was selling 30,000 more copies an issue or was mm, selling okay. 
um, instead of 90,000 copies, was selling, you know, 175,000 copies. And so they quickly put out a Star Wars special, and they put out Star Wars on the cover of every issue of Famous Monsters. And, and, and then Close Encounters came along. Right. And then, um, uh, so that kind of gave a lot of influx of interest and sales to Famous Monsters mm -hmm. at that time. Yeah, and that's when I jumped on board, you know. I knew of Famous Monsters, but we, uh, I also love Star Wars, and it's like, oh, well. Yeah. So I started buying it regularly then. Uh, well, yeah, because it was you could see the pictures and stuff, uh, yeah. Was there ever an issue, because this was a problem with me, even though I came from a not a wealthy family, but I mean, you know, m middle class. Uh, yeah. the, the pricing on uh, Warren Publications is always higher. Like, I'll use Mad as an example. Mad was like 40 cents, 50 cents. And meanwhile, Famous Monsters was like a buck, a buck and a quarter, you know. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was harder for me to come up with the extra dough to, to get a magazine that was doubled basically the price of my mad, you know, or cracked or anything like that. Was that ever an issue or anything like that as far as sales? Well, you have to consider that when Creepy started at um, 35 cents, comics were only 12 cents. Yeah. <laughs> so it was, his magazines were always more expensive than a comic book. Mm -hmm. And even you know um, maybe some lesser magazines like you say uh, but he was he never um, he always kept it I always thought from my understanding it's within the realm that made sense and it never felt like you know he couldn't really gouge he wasn't in a position to he didn't have something that was so exclusive that people were going to just give up all their other favorites so they could get just his magazine so right. he um, his prices gradually went up um, but then there was inflation in the 70s yeah. and uh, so I don't think it was ever a problem I know people would grouse and, and gnash their teeth and <laughs> nobody nobody likes to see a comic go when comics went from 12 cents to 15 cents and then they jumped from 15 straight to 20 I thought the world was ending right. and uh, uh, but uh, people seem to be okay with the pricing okay and then um, another question that came along is sort of thinking, you know, we talked about Harvey Kurtzman and Help. Um, after Help ended in 65, was there ever any consideration to do another humor magazine? I do put this in my Cracked book that Warren mentioned briefly. He was considering toying with the idea of purchasing Cracked, but it never happened. Well, uh, that's exactly right. Um, and there's not much more to the story than that. Okay. He looked into it. They wanted more then he wanted, you know, he was looking for a bargain, I guess. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and, and, you know, he just didn't think it was within the realm that it would work for him economically. And he didn't want to, you know, to do, to go there. But in retrospect, years later in the Warren companion, he, I believe he says he should, he should have done it. Yeah. He feels like he, he, he said, the thing is, Warren created all of his own magazines, and you know, none, he never took over any other magazine. Right. And I think for him, you know, taking over Cracked, uh, he, 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 as he said later, it would have been a perfect fit. Yeah. But at the time, uh, he just didn't want to. He, closing the deal just was a little more than he was able to do or wanted to do. Maybe he tried to afford it and he couldn't get the financing. I don't know. Yeah. Although, I will <laughs> pick a nit here. He, uh, he did take over the Spirit. I mean, he started over with number one, but, I mean, you know, he did publish the Spirit. Well, right? okay. <laughs> Good point. But that, but that, and, 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 in fact, the, 
that was, you're right, it really wasn't being published other than a couple of um, uh, issues from Dennis Kitchen. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, he took it over from Kitchen, and um, it wasn't originated by him. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Um, I always think of that as sort of off to the side, <laughs> but it, and because, uh, you know, um, it was really something he did. It was a, almost as a fan. Mm. He was just such a fan of the spirit mm-hmm. that the fact that we could work with Will Eisner was just so, meant so much to him mm-hmm. that he would do anything to keep Eisner happy. So he just basically, whatever, de- and Eisner was a realist. He wasn't asking for the moon. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I have the exact, I don't think the exact details of their contract are in there, mm-hmm. but these stories had already been drawn yeah. and there wasn't you know uh, so you know it was all just a matter of taking the photocopies uh, photostats and you know maybe fixing up the splash pages a little so they they fit better into a into a magazine and actually it's a they look beautiful uh-huh. the spirit magazine the, the spirit has never looked I mean they're in black and white except for like one story an issue yeah but but the, the looks just fantastic I, I I can't tell you um, you know uh, it, there's really something as if you're a fan of the spirit and Eisner getting that magazine you were getting something that was really good I think now what was the story and, on that I mean it's like uh, as far as sales did it just not sell very well and that's why it went back to kitchen sink or yeah I okay. mean I think, I think what happened was that you know Warren um, um Wanted to wanted it so bad. He just said he thought he could get it to sell basically what his other magazines were selling. You know, like whatever it was, ninety thousand, mm-hmm. hundred thousand, uh, and uh, it did it first. Yeah, but it drifted, mm-hmm. and um, finally it got to a point where, you know, it just wasn't. Well, he couldn't just take loss after loss, and um, and so. Uh, you know, uh, Eisner went back to Kitchen Sink, and Kitchen Sink continued it for a number of issues, mm-hmm. and it worked just fine through the direct market and so on. Mm-hmm. But uh, it didn't work for Warren, and um, but those sixteen issues, I think there's sixteen Warren issues, are just uh, wonderful. Yes. <laughs> um, now you mentioned casually that uh, uh, Warren kind of lost interest later on like in the late 70s and early 80s but from what i found out on the warren companion is he also got sick during those years is that correct or no well um yes he did um but um i i mean i think the losing of the interest happened before that i think um i you know i this is an area i don't i go into in the book quite a bit so i'd rather not just try to lay it all out here right but yes he did become ill and but that was more toward the um 80 toward 1980 81 and that period um i think uh where he lost interest i think was when more was when the vampirella movie just didn't happen Mm. i think that really sort of took the a lot of the uh, uh, pleasure out of it for him because you know he doesn't been doing the magazine there was nothing new in that and then to not have the movie work out like it could have been so good yeah. I mean um, 
was just uh, such a disappointment to him and took so much energy and he gave so much to it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think at that point it was just uh, uh, kind of a depressing thing that kind of, uh, he, he, you know, he just never really was that engaged with the magazines. The covers, yes. Mm-hmm. But with, I think he lost his you know, much engagement with what was inside the magazines mm-hmm. by, you know, 78, 79, 80. And of course, Louise Jones, who was editing, was doing a bang-up job, so he didn't need to. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think he lost interest. Did, uh, but did it, he ever but approach any other studios with the Vampirella movie, or is Hammer it? There were other attempts to do other things with it, okay. um, but um, you know he never got any traction with any of them. Or how about, any, did he try any other movies? I know you mentioned, and I'll briefly re- say it again, you, you said he did a thing in the early 60s, which sounds vaguely like Jay Ward's Fractured Flickers, you know, where he's... It, 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 essentially, it's very much like that. Is, yeah, that, what that, it, is that what ended that? <laughs> what ended that was that um, he, he got involved with a guy that was helping him with it, and the guy said, oh yeah, I can put these together for you and do a great job, and he kept saying, but I need a little more money for this, and I need a little more money for that, and he milked Warren and milked Warren, and finally he gave him back those stuff and said, ah, I can't do anything with it. Mm-hmm. And Warren was furious, mm-hmm. and he spent this money, and he just put the, the stuff away for the, for the time being. I'll get back to it later, and he never did. Mm-hmm. And so finally, he sold what he had to another guy years later, uh, a friend of his, for $1,000, just like, I don't know what it was, it must have been reels of film. Mm-hmm. And uh, that guy never did anything with him either. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, uh, but that, that, as far as I know, those, those were the only two. Um, uh, there must have been. I can see him trying to to do other thing, trying to get other things going. Well, like, did he but ever think, do a, a an Uncle Creepy Cousin Eerie film or something like no, that? No, no. Oh, okay. That, that that could have been fun. Mm-hmm. But I think I think for him, the thing about it is, is that nothing was better. Vampirella was like his gem property. Yeah. And not only that, but he had he had co-created Vampirella. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just you know you know with Creepy and Eerie. Um, I don't think those were Warren creations, really. Those were uh, um, creations that came out of uh, um, the people that were working on the magazines more so. Right. Um, whereas Vampirella, he designed the costume. Um, he had uh, told Frazetta that he wanted her to be a brunette, not a blonde. I mean, he didn't, and, and you know, he, he's the one that had the idea of how her, her um, collar would work and the boots and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he felt, and then when you think about it, really, here's this um, very attractive woman, uh, you know, sexy, uh, uh, you know, uh, based kind of like on a Barbarella thing. He had nothing, that was just such a commercial idea mm-hmm. that it could have very, if he didn't, if that wasn't going to work, what did he have that was going to work better? Right. <laughs> and I think that's what it was. See, it was his gem. And when that didn't work, you know, he, what else was he going to, you know, he wasn't going to go back and try to do Creepy and Eerie. True. Okay. How about those later magazines or anything like Rook or Goblin or anything like that? Which, well, I think, the, I think that the idea in Bill Dubay's mind was that Rook could become a, a movie thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as far as I know, um, nothing ever got anything mm-hmm. more than, they may have made some attempts, but no, and nothing ever happened with that. Mm-hmm. And then, as far as the end of Warren, I mean, it, was it just that sales finally 
plummeted or is it uh, Warren being sick or a combination of everything, the direct market? What what kind of finally in, you know, I mean, it's probably explained in length in the book, but in a nutshell, what do you think is like the real ending of Warren Publications in 83? Well, I think um, one thing Bill DuBay said was that if Jim Warren had been fully engaged and hadn't been ill, he had no question that in his mind that that the magazines would have continued and would have continued to be successful for some time to come. Mm-hmm. Um, but Warren was completely uh, unengaged with them and, and um, was, um, and Dubay had, was burned out on, on editing them and didn't want to do it and they mm-hmm. couldn't find really anybody else. So, uh, they had a real difficult time in 80 and 81 finding someone to replace uh, Louise uh, Simonson than Louise Jones mm-hmm. and so um, they were lacking uh, Warren was so tough to work for mm-hmm. that, and, and he couldn't pay much mm-hmm. so therefore um, you know it was hard for them to find somebody that would put up with his guff basically and he admitted <laughs> it he was, he was straightforward about that he said that there are few and far between that can put up with the wrath of Warren <laughs> and uh, he, he was right and even Dubay, people said, well, Dubay became like a clone of Warren and all this stuff. Well, um, but Dubay had, was completely burned out on Warren after, you know, about mm-hmm. six, seven years. He, he'd had it. He'd had it. Mm-hmm. And um, so he was grateful for the job that he had. But, but what really, what, it was kind of a com- combination of things. But I think the key thing is that Warren himself was ill yeah. and was unable to come in and really take charge and make it happen. Mm-hmm. Secondly, um, it was a new era. The direct market was happening, but he was involved in the direct market. Mm-hmm. You know, he was one of the, found, he was somebody who was involved with uh, Phil Suling and um, Seagate distributors. Mm-hmm. And um, in fact, he was named in a lawsuit that uh, when others were trying to break the Seagate's hold, uh, sort of monopoly on on distributing DC comics mm-hmm. and um, or was it Marvel I, I'd have to I, my memory isn't, isn't completely clear on, <laughs> on that but the point is he was part of the direct market too mm-hmm. uh, you know some people have said well with the direct market the need for the Warren magazines maybe was less there were other adult yeah. things that had come along others have said you know their time had passed. Yeah. That the, and and I and so I think there's some combination of all these things yeah. that has to be the answer. Well, it is kind of interesting around that time when a lot of publishers kind of went away too. You're like Charlton kind of went away. I mean, they kind of came back a couple times, but also Harvey went away. Uh, who who else in the early '80s? And it was just like a big transitional time. And for me, as you know, a fan that didn't read everything, and there wasn't a lot of stuff publishing, it's like it just seems like you know. I felt at the time the blame was on video games, which seems to make no sense. But that everything just ceased publication all at once. All the stuff that I bought during the seventies was gone. <laughs> well, the one thing I didn't mention, which specifically, yeah. is that the newsstand distribution deteriorated terribly. Okay. Um, and so DC and Marvel and everybody were were just their sales were dropping, and um, the number all the old mom and pop. Uh, candy stores were closing, yeah. um, and in general, comics uh, were the comics distribution and magazine distribution. But comics were at the bottom, yeah. and always at the 
killed all those companies is yeah. that they just newsstand sales just had dropped to the point where they weren't viable anymore. Yeah, because even Marvel, you know, all those other companies we mentioned, Skywalt and everything, were all gone, and then Marvel got down to publishing Crazy, which also ended in 83, and then uh, Savage Sword of Conan, that was pretty much it, and that was an anomaly that kind of went on for a few more years after that, but seemed like everybody got out of the black and white business until more recently, I mean, uh, but... Uh, yeah, was yeah, I mean, I think I think it was the distribution. Okay, it really was. And okay. he, think about it. Charlton had their own distribution. Right. They they had Capital Distributing, which they owned, and was located in the same place where their comics were produced mm-hmm. and, and, and printed. And Capital just Capital had trucks and everybody ready to take the the product out there. But there must not have been enough wholesalers uh, that wanted it. Yeah. Now, when Warren got well again, which I don't remember when that was, but I mean. Did he ever make any attempts to come back into publishing? I know Forrest Ackerman came back to revive Famous Monsters and then had a dispute. He also did like a Monster Land or something briefly, and uh, you know, and then eventually he just got old and retired and died. But uh, Warren, yeah. it just you know, he's still living and everything like that. It's like, of course, now he's probably pretty elderly. But was there any attempts later on to revive any of his old titles or even new titles? It's like there were. There was, he talked about it. Yeah. And when he got, in the 90s, when his health had been restored, and he was, um, uh, you know, fighting for, to regain control of uh, Vampirella, and Creepy and Eerie, mm-hmm. and he eventually did get back Creepy and Eerie, but not Vampirella. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he talked about publishing comics, he t- talked about doing this and that, and um, I think the world had changed. Mm. And I think his mastery of the world, I think he looked around and realized he just wasn't on top of all the factors that were involved anymore. Mm. And um, uh, the work involved was, you know, it was a lot of work to do that kind of thing. And I don't think it, it uh, you know, he was uh, only 65 at the time, but, you know, we say only 65, you know, 65, you, you're going to want to take on. Of course, then again, people that want to run for president when they're 70, I think they're crazy. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, I mean, just because of age. Yeah. I mean, who's going to take on something, the hardest job in the world when you're, you know, 70? Yeah. But anyway, um, uh, he never did anything concrete with it. He sold the right, eventually sold the rights to Creepy and Eerie and Lock, Stock, and Barrel to some other guys, and then they started publishing again. Okay. And so I talk about that in the book okay. and how that happened and um, and all that, but uh, no, he never, he, he made noises about it, okay. but I, if he made any concrete moves to practically make it happen, um, they were behind the scenes. So he actually sold Creepy and Eerie to Harris? Because I kind of thought it was kind of taken from him, and he had to kind of fight for it. Is that true? Well, it was kind of taken from him, but he got it back, ah. and then he sold it to other guys. Ah, the people that own it, own it now are not um, Harris Publishing. Right. But and I meant originally, I yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think Dynamite now owns Vampirella, but Creepy and Eerie are um, owned by another company, and uh, which the, my name is not coming to mind, but I have a photograph of him the day he signed the deal with them, okay. posing with one of the guys. Yeah. <clears throat> and um, then they sold the, then they made the deal with Dark Horse to reprint all those um, creepy and eerie issues in the deluxe editions. Right. Mm-hmm. And they were the guys that owned the rights to the, the to those titles by then. 
Now, why was Vampirella its own thing? Was it just fluke or... Um, I'm not sure uh, why exactly it, it didn't get included, yeah. but, um, you know, there's, uh, there's a huge story involving their and very involved illegal thing that went on for years and i did not choose to try to tell that whole complicated story for me the story was about the man jim warren right and uh, the fact that these these lawsuits occurred and the basic general basis of them was there, but I don't go into uh, the finer points because you could write a whole book about that, or you could even spend, when you think about it, you're reading a book and then you're going to spend the the last two chapters of the book (laughs) going into, you know, it just just, um, was more detailed than I thought was warranted for this book. I mean, people who have read my Harvey Kurtzman book know that it was 642 pages long. Right. (laughs) Very (laughs) thorough. It's a book and it's a workout program. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> but I loved it, incidentally. I'll let you know that. that was, if I had written a book, you know, you, you, I don't know if you're familiar with all my books, but it's like it's like one of mine. It's like the 700-page tome that just tells everything, which, you know. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, I'm, I'm proud of it, immensely proud of it. Yeah. And, you know, it won an Eisner Award and all that. Yeah. But this, this book, that was 642 pages, and how many people want to read 642 pages about anybody? Right. <laughs> and and it sold well. Yeah. But this one is 350 pages. Okay. So it's about I won't say it's half as long, but the text is about half as long. Yeah. A uh, li- little more than that, but uh it's a it's a, a impressive book. I've got a advanced copy here. Mm-hmm. Um and of course um it should be out shortly, but the um uh, it's an impressive book, but it's it's only 350 pages, and uh, because I just felt like the problem with the Cursor book was, it, you know, I wouldn't want it any different, mm-hmm. but it was long. Yes, <laughs> and it wouldn't. And 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 for Jim Warren, I don't think you need a book that long. Right. Well, he didn't diversify. I mean, Kurtzman did diversify quite a bit, and there is lengthy stories that are interesting about Mad and uh, Trump and uh, Humbug and Help and any of the other projects. I mean, Warren's is kind of self-contained in Warren publications. It seems like. Well, exactly. Yeah. <clears throat> Harvey Kurtzman had many different stages to his career that are fascinating, and Warren. There's different phases of Warren Publishing, yeah. but it's still all Warren Publishing. Yeah. And um, and so it didn't lend it. And also, he's the publisher. Now he was a creative guy. You know, he did logos for the magazines and different things. But um, you know, he uh, uh, it's a different story. It's a story of a, of an entrepreneur, a man who dreamed big, and who um, ended up with it crashing and burning. Unfortunately, at the end of his career, mm-hmm. and uh, he survived. And he's still with us today. Um, So uh, he, you know, and I'm sure he wouldn't, has no regrets uh, or would do it any differently, but it is uh, not um, the kind of story that Harvey Kurtzman had. It's It's a more... Um, contained story, like you said. And then, along with Vampirella, you said that it would be its own book into itself. Then there's the famous monster story. Like, when I was a kid, I always thought, creepy, eerie, Vampirella, famous monsters, one big happy family of four titles, and occasionally there's a fifth one. But 
Famous Monsters went on its own crazy journey, and there is a whole book about that too. You know where you know rights were sold and everything. How? Why was all this craziness with all these titles? And uh, was people just assuming things, and they just took it over, and then they said, "Nope, that's not yours." Well, a lot of people you'll find in publishing, they'll 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 hire some attorney that looks into something to see if they have if if it's in public domain or if they can use it. Mm-hmm. And if that attorney says they can and they go forward, well, a lot of attorneys don't know what they're talking about. Oh. <laughs> and a lot of people start things. Um, some people just don't even consult an attorney. They just think, um, oh, that was so many years ago. I'll just use this until somebody sues me. Uh. And if somebody sues me, then I'll worry about that then. Yeah. Um, and um, you know, th- and you know, there's been every all kinds of cases that have happened. In the '60s, there was a publisher that came up with a new Captain Marvel right. <laughs> um, that was terrible. But they, he thought the name Captain Marvel was in public domain and he could use it, and he right. was wrong, and he got uh, shut down. Mm. So, um, you know, uh, that I think what happened was there were people that along the way that felt that they were justified, um, that they had, an, they could do it. Um, no one else was doing it, um, or it was in public domain, or they made an arrangement with Forey, or whatever, mm-hmm. and um, it just um, uh, was, eventually, it, it, it ended up getting onto a, a more or less what you would call an authorized track, mm-hmm. and there are later issues of Famous Monsters that are not, you know, that are, you know, uh, that are legal, and all that, mm-hmm. and that are probably very good. Um, I talk a little bit about that, but not too much, because it didn't have anything to do with Warren. Mm-hmm. A whole book could be done, you're right, on the Monster magazines, and right. and uh, actually there probably has been, but yeah. uh, there, is, there is a book on famous monsters that Forey did, yeah. one or two of them. And there is a book about Forey, there is a book about... That was done by, I believe, Ray Ferry, the other guy, you know, about his right. things. And so so there is uh, books out there for people who want to research it further. So, um, Yeah, but, I, you know, I just, I just tried to put in everything I could find out and every unknown fact that I could find mm-hmm. and try to get to know him as a person, yeah. who he was, what motivated him. And the thing that I find I just ultimately respect so much about him is he want, he was his own original person. He didn't, uh, he, you know, he wasn't like anybody else. He just basically <laughs> said, I'm going to be the way I am, and the world has yeah. pretty much got to adjust to me. And uh, um, he was quite a character, and many people, many people in life loved him. You know, he was not a monster, uh, like, you know, not, I never wanted to call the book, you know, James Warren, Famous Monster or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he wasn't a monster, right. and he isn't a monster. Yeah, Empire of Monsters is a good title. I like that. Well, um, that was, that's funny because it was the, I thought of it in the car as I was walking into my publisher, <laughs> and I wrote it down, and I came in, and I, we're talking about titles, and he said, well, he said, well, what do you think of Empire of Monsters? And I said, you're kidding. <laughs> we had the same idea on the same day. Wow. <laughs> he, he said that he had an empire, and it was mostly just monsters, wasn't it? And I said, yeah, yeah Empire of Monsters. Yeah. <laughs> so that's how it came about. And uh, I know you said Warren said he was working on his own book and turned you down, but uh, has he seen your book, or uh, did you ever send him copies or anything of the manuscript, or you just left him completely out? So if he sees it now, he just sees it now. <laughs> yeah, no, he'll see it now. And, um, uh, you know, it, it, 
uh, at a certain point, you know, my publisher is basically saying, look, if they're working on their own book, then, you know, we don't necessarily need to share all your research with them. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and make it all available okay. to them. Yeah. So uh, this will be the first time uh, um, anybody else has seen it, mm -hmm. uh, and um, I'm you know, very excited to hear what the reaction is. I hope people mm -hmm. like it. And what is the dimensions of the book? Is it like the Harvey Kurtzman book, the 6x9? Yeah, nine? it's 6x9, okay. six, six okay. something like that. Part of the reason... It's, got, Go ahead. it's a hardcover. Uh-huh. Yeah, and it has a color insert, an eight-page color insert. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Part of the reason I asked is because uh, even though I liked the book, I was like shocked when I got your John Stanley book, <laughs> and I said, "Wow, it's this big giant behemoth thing," you know. And it's like, it, you know, it, it was good for some of the artwork, but it's like I kind of wish that was like a six by nine size or an eight and a half by eleven at least. But you know, you did what you did. <laughs> well, I understand, and, and uh, but. Yeah. Certainly, I didn't think the six by nine inch would work with the art. The, yeah. the John Stanley book was always going to be uh, a, a lot of artwork. Right. It, yes, it has a full manuscript, but it's it's not. You know, there was there wasn't. Uh, it, it, the manuscript is about half as long as the uh, Warren manuscript, yeah. and so it was always going to be a picture book. So the question was. Um, what would be the best size? And and if you're going to re do a book like that, you want the, the reader to be you want to reproduce a whole page so they can see what a page was like, mm -hmm. and then you want them to be able to read it. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to just put it on a six by nine book, think of how limited that is. Whereas if you have a book where you can put two pages side by side and you can still read them on one you know one side of the so you could have four across, True. and they're still readable. Yeah. Then you can get in so much more, and so the the decision to make the book that big was came out of the desire to be able to run more of the artwork. Yeah. Um, we were, were able to run, you know, so much more that way. The six by nine book isn't ideal for artwork at all. Okay. So uh, eight and a half by eight and a half by eleven is okay, but then again, but even there, you can't run. You'd end up with all these pages where you have the column text coming down the side of a a page, mm -hmm. and you you know you couldn't really do side uh, four across. Okay, so you I think the, the Warren book doesn't reproduce a lot of artwork. It's more photos and things like that. Well, you know, again, I, 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 with with Stanley, I wanted people to read it so yeah. that you could kind of get the feeling for these sequences. Yeah. And and with the Warren, Warren Companion, it's more about looking at the artwork than being able to read the pages. Right. I see. Okay. And um, we're kind of nearing the end, but you know, I yeah, I think, I think we've covered just about everything. <laughs> and it's like I, you know, it's like I wanted to ask a couple a couple questions about your other books. We uh, so. Um, I was just kind of looking through. You did an Otto Binder book. You did a Joe Kubert book. Um, but the one that kind of impressed me that kind of came out of left field, and I do want to ask you this before we go, is a Harry Langdon book. What, what prompted that? Because it seems kind of out of left field compared to all the other books you've done. Well, probably people that are listening to that go here. Listening to this are going Harry who? Yes, <laughs> uh, because uh, he's not exactly Harry Langdon is not exactly a household name. Yeah, but the reason I did that was because back in uh, I wrote that's the first book I ever wrote back in 1982, and I was a film fan and. So I decided, gee, I, maybe I should write a book on Harry Langdon. Mm. <laughs> and 
culture um, and I you know I, there was this was before the internet and so on and so much later I realized you know gee I, I just could have done such a better job if I had the resources I have now mm-hmm. and you know I, my, I can get doors to open now because I've had so much published okay. and um, so I decided to go back and, and improve it and write it make it the book that I had wanted to write but I just couldn't do back in the days before internet yeah. and so that's what happened so I was reissued uh, by McFarland mm-hmm. and um, I'm very happy that that happened and so it's one of those seven biographies I've written <laughs> well is that one the part of the, the issue of reissue, the reason to reissue is also in 1982, I mean, who had access to the films? I mean, home video was just kind of starting out. So how did you see all the films? Just Well, that's a good point. And actually, the, the, the thing about it is, though, is that at that time, there were lots of people that were still alive who, when they were kids, watched Harry Langdon and knew Harry Langdon mm-hmm. because he was a pretty big star in his day. Mm-hmm. And so it was like, you know, I don't know if you could compare him to Pee Wee Herman or somebody, but uh, he was more a little bit better than Pee Wee Herman, I would say. But uh, you know, uh, somebody who a lot of people had had uh, were still around, so the, the book could sell to people that remembered mm-hmm. Harry Langdon. I see. Uh, true, the movies you couldn't see, but they remembered him, so mm-hmm. it sold. You know, like a thousand copies, a, a small number, but it was an educational publisher. Mm. And, um, but yes, now you can get all of Langdon's great five features on DVD. Mm. There's a, a DVD that has all the Senate shorts on it. In fact, it has a documentary that I'm in. Mm. And, um, uh, the, 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 collection of the the Max Senate comedy shorts that Harry Langdon did, there's 25 of them roughly, mm-hmm. um, is called Harry Langdon Lost and Found. Mm-hmm. It's out of print, but I'm sure you could you know, go to eBay or somewhere. Uh, but but the, the features are available. And um, so, yeah, nowadays, um, and so the book sold, you know, much better. And because nowadays people, you know, can look at it, look at them, and they can see him, and uh, it makes a difference. Mm. Okay. Well, um, what uh, if you can discuss it? What uh, projects are you working on now? Well, the base, the thing I'm working on now um, is the um, I'm doing another book in the American Comic Book Chronicles series. Oh yeah. Um, I did the fifties. Mm-hmm. And this is from Tomorrow's Publishing, as you know. Yes. Um, I did the 50s, and then uh, they, they did two for the 60s, and they were going to do two for the 70s, split yeah. the, the decades in half. And Kurt Mitchell was going to do both books for the 40s right. with some help from Roy Thomas. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, Kurt developed some health issues that he just couldn't go right into writing the second book. Mm. And John Morrow just, the series has been going in production for years, and he doesn't want to wait five years, or, or he, you know, we really don't know what the story is with Kurt's health anyway, which, you know, whether he would be able to do another book anytime anytime soon. Right. And so, um, he, had, you know, they just asked him, he said, I really, he, he pulled out and said, mm. I really can't do the book from 1945 from 49. Okay. And so John Morrow contacted me and said, would I be interested? And I had already talked to him about it. I said, you know, I'd be interested in doing it. He said, well, we have Kurt doing it. And so he knew I had an interest in that time period. Yeah. And so um, I just about 
two or three weeks ago, we concluded a deal for me to do that book, so I'm starting to work on it. Oh, okay. Yeah, I worked with Kurt a little bit. I mean, he asked me Harvey questions and stuff like that for the early 40s books. So, um, And I think I contributed something along the line to the 60s book or something. People ask me questions all the time, and I say, well, it's this and this. And, you know, so I'm oh, very... and, you, and, you, and you actually helped me a little bit, um, I think, on the 50s book. Yeah, um, yeah. Maybe you got me in touch with Sid Jacobson or somebody. Yeah, probably. You know, it's like people ask me stuff all the time, and I just say, "Well, here he, he's over here, and this is over here, and this is this fact." Yeah, and I, so I don't remember what I contribute to. I just get my name in there as special things. And I go, okay, well, it's gonna be. It's not gonna come out till you know. 2020 or something because so I'm just starting work on it now. So if you need help on that one, I, you know, I could probably help you. I mean, Harvey in the late 40s tended to be newspaper reprints more than superheroes, but, you know. <laughs> well, do you have uh, much access to, to images and things? Because maybe I can ask you about that when the time uh, comes. But we don't some, need to share this some. with your, yeah, with your yeah, listening yeah. audience, I suppose. <laughs> just buy the book. <laughs> anyway, all right, well, you know, now comes the time to do the, the proverbial plugs for uh, any or all your books, or uh, basically tell people how they can get in touch with you, any websites, how to get the Jim Warren book, or any book, uh, let me know. Yeah, um, and for sure, um, my website is www.billshellyrundtogether.net, and that's almost all my books can be purchased through there, and um, this book is called James Warren, Empire of Monsters, and it that will be available, you know, in, in all the usual places. Uh, and um, you can get through, through my website, it has my email address. Mm-hmm. Okay. Can they get autographed books through that? or? You know? Well, yeah, anybody, of course. Um, now, I, I don't sell books. Um, I, I do sell some of my old Hamster Press books, mm-hmm. uh, like uh, The Golden Age of Comic Fandom. But uh, other than that, I don't sell books anymore. So I can't sign books mm-hmm. unless they send me a book mm-hmm. in an envel- with, with a mailing envelope with postage to send it back to them. Mm-hmm. And if they'll do that, if they want to go to that much effort, I'll be happy to sign I'll be happy to sign their book. Do you ever do any shows? Like, do you do Emerald City or anything like that? Since Um, I have done um, San Diego. I've done Emerald City. I am, um, well, by the time this uh, um, discussion happens, I will have already appeared at Comic Fest in San Diego uh, in March, early March. Mm -hmm. Um, So I do some shows, but I'm not regularly on the show circuit because I'm, I'm really a writer. I'm right. not so much of someone that, you know, likes to travel and so on, but I do some of it. Um, yeah. And uh, I, uh, any, anywhere I appear, I, I'm happy to sign books uh, for people. So. All right. Very good. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks for having me on your show, Mark. I appreciate it. And thank you, Bill, for being on the show. And you were very informative. This was very good. Uh, very lively discussion about Jim Warren because, you know, I know most of the stuff that I've read before, but I'm, I hope to get some more insights and everything about him and his magazines in your new book. Well, I hope we accomplish that. All right, and I thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Have a good day. Mm-hmm. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening, and thank you again, Bill Shelley, for being my special guest. Episode number 30 will be coming soon. If you would like to comment and or be a guest on this podcast, please drop me a line at funideas.mark at gmail.com and become a patron of Fun Ideas Productions. And if everyone listening just contributed $1 a month, that would be a tremendous help. 
Also, you can subscribe to my YouTube channel. This has been Fun Ideas Podcast. This is Mark Arnold speaking. This episode is copyright 2019 Fun Ideas Productions. Thank you very much and have a good night.